Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews? are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. Stephanie Grisham has the hottest book in the country. It is called I'll Take Your Questions Now. Great, great selection of title. We'll get into that in a moment. What I Saw at the Trump White House. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it, Stephanie. I have two preliminary questions for you. Number one, are your teeth your own? And second, are you wearing pantyhose? Uh, Thank you for having me. Yes, they are my own. I didn't even have braces. And no, I currently have black leggings on right now. And why would I begin this conversation with such ridiculous questions? Because I write about those in the book. The president of the United States asked me those very questions. He just as randomly, I might add, just as randomly. He has he has no filter. I mean, he has no filter. There's that vignette in the book where he pulls you aside. It may have even been the pantyhose conversation on Marine One. And he says, hey, you know, that supporter of ours in Arizona, you got to call her and tell her what not to wear a sleeveless 
outfit. Um, tell, yeah. tell that story. That, yes, we were we were headed to Arizona, actually, and we were on Air Force One. And uh, he pulled me into his cabin and said, you know, do you do you know this person? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, you know, do me a favor. You need you got to tell her to stop wearing sleeveless outfits. It's just it's not flattering and she doesn't look good. But, you know, I can't do it. I can't do it with me, too, and all. So so you you got to tell her not to wear those. And that I did type- not tell him that. Right. But just just another day at the office for that kind of unfiltered conversation. The other one that's top of mind is that Stormy Daniels had made certain allegations about his manhood, pulls you aside. He wants you to know, I guess this is in reference to the toadstool uh, allegation that, hey, everything's okay down there. Yes, that one was, um, well, it was worse for uh, every imaginable way, but that one was bad because he actually called me from Air Force One and he called me to to see if we were going to comment because I was working in the East Wing at the time. So he called me to see if we were going to comment about it. And then he proceeded to just talk to me about how everything was okay down there. And if you take a phone call from Air Force One, it's still surprisingly not smooth. And so everything's very cut up. And so he'll say something and then there's this long pause and then I'm like, yes, sir. And then there's this long pause and he he continued on. So it was uh, for sure the most awkward conversation I've ever had in my life. So I was reading the book and I was consuming (laughs) all of these anecdotes, all of the vignettes that you present. And what I was saying is that same lack of filter that makes him comfortable in telling you about his manhood or asking for your assistance to school the Arizona woman how to dress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is both his greatest deficiency and it is why he got elected, because that willingness to say whatever the hell was on his mind is what people loved about him in 2016. And a lot of people still loved about him in 2020. It's it's what I loved about him in 2016. You know, I saw him um, at his his rally in Phoenix, that very first one with so many people. And not only did just me listening to him, I loved everything he was saying because he spoke so plainly. Um, And I watched everyone in that room just be transfixed by him. And that's why I initially joined his campaign. Um, And, you know, I got to say, even throughout my time in the White House, a lot of times he would say those things and I it didn't bother me. It was funny to me. I mean, he was just like a kind of a funny old uncle or something just talking to you and saying things out of the blue. So to those who have watched the rollout of the book and have watched you and your television appearances so far might be listening to this right now who say, Stephanie Grisham, it is too little, too late. You would say what? I'll help you in this regard by saying that this book, I think, is very harsh on you, the author. You pulled no punches about yourself. Yeah, well, I don't think you can write a book um, and talk about the things that I talked about and not take some responsibility. I just don't think that would have been fair. And when I decided to write the book, I promised myself it would be authentic and good or bad. It would just lay out all the facts. And, you know, I would say to anybody who said too little, too late, I understand. And that's fair. Um, But for me, I'm now I've been so far removed from Trump world. I've actually I called it kind of being deprogrammed. and, And that's the only way I can really describe it. But I've been, you know, in middle America and watching things from afar and I'm watching him continue to push the election lie and I'm watching him try to put people who will do his bidding in Congress. And so while the book may be too little too late in terms of 
that part of our administration or that first administration, I don't think it's too little too late when it comes to 2024. If, if people think that our first administration was bad and everybody there who, you know, who worked there was bad, I would love for people to try and imagine who he's going to have working for him in that White House in 2024. You write in the epilogue, it has occurred to me as I've been writing that I seem to be blaming everyone but myself for how things turned out for me in the White House, especially in the last six months. According to me, I was the victim of COVID, of Meadows and his people, of my ex, of the former East Wing chief of staff, of some of my own East Wing staff, of some West Wing senior staff, of the president, and even the first lady at the very end. And then further along in the paragraph, you say people need to hold themselves accountable to situations so that they can learn from them and apply them in the next chapter of their life. And that includes me. Is that what you most want people to know who would be critical of you as to a Johnny-come-lately approach? Yeah, I mean, certainly that point, but also... I am at a place now where I don't I don't need to be liked. I don't know if that makes sense because everybody wants to be liked. Everybody wants to be liked. But, you know, I've gone kind of back to basics, which has been fantastic. And by that, I mean, I have been spending time with my family and my friends, many of whom I had neglected. And I have been reconnecting with just actual, just real down to earth people. Like one of my neighbors is a prison nurse and one of my neighbors uh, drives an oil rig. And I'm listening to them about their lives and and the issues in their lives. And so for me, I'm good now. I'm good now. I don't need people's approval. I just wanted to get that story out there. The epiphany moment for you comes when you are literally sanding floors. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing the discussion on page 304. But you now recognize, hey, I've been in abusive relationships in the past. And this work environment was itself an abusive situation. Is that fair? Is that how you characterize it? Yes, that is. Um, And as I've thought about that even more, just doing this book tour, you know, as I was standing that floor, um, it was, I was standing that floor in the very first house I've ever owned in my life. And I was thinking about, you know, here I am in my forties and I have, I have been around some people who have treated me really poorly. And now I have my own house and I have my own car and nobody's going to ever hurt me again. And that's kind of how that, that thinking evolved. I don't know if that sounds weird, but um, I drew a lot of parallels to some of my um, childhood abuse and then some um, abuse in relationships that I've had with working in that particular White House. All my life, I dealt with abusive men. People who had lied to me, berated me, made me feel like shit. They kept telling me that I was crazy, I was psycho, I was emotional, and I couldn't believe my own eyes and ears. And I'd believed them, or I'd wanted to. I'd kept forgiving them, kept trying to get them not to abuse me physically or verbally. When that didn't work, I would convince myself that I was a bad person and that the way they were treating me was because of something I had done. When I read that, by the way, this is national... Uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I I think I said that properly. When I got to that paragraph in the book, I thought, man, that that probably speaks for a lot of women. Do you view yourself as a champion for women in that regard? You know, I I do now. I never did before. I would say if there's something I am grateful for um, coming out of this, this Trump administration and going through the journey I did with writing the book and redoing this house is I feel stronger than ever. And I, I really do feel like I'm never going to let anybody abuse me in any way again, whether it's verbally, 
mentally, physically. Um, and I do want to be able to talk to women and more children on it, honestly, um, about that. And that, you know, you do blame yourself and it gets so easy to, you know, while I'm being weak, I'm being dramatic. I still think sometimes I'm being too dramatic and I'm trying to check myself there. And I want, I want women to know it's okay to, to speak out. And if it doesn't feel good, it's not good. That's okay. So I, I've had to tell friends, what do you make stupid talk about when you're wasting time and trying to be respectful to someone who's in your company and you happen to be in the Oval Office at the time? The answer is you talk about French bulldogs. I think <laughs> you'll probably remember that we had such a conversation while waiting for the commander in chief. You showed me a picture of your dog and it was a very warm moment at a time when we were thinking about getting a French bulldog. By the way, it was just too damn expensive. But I read the book now and I come to realize even that dog became a pawn in an uncomfortable and abusive domestic situation in which you later found yourself. Yes, that that dog, um, Gus, that I had, uh, it was my uh, my birthday present. And as you know, from our conversations, I had pictures. I loved him. Um, I'd always wanted one. And <clears throat> when I left my ex um, after a, a pretty abusive situation, he he kept the dog um, and wouldn't you know, he wouldn't let me have the dog. Um, and that was that was horrible. And, you know, it's funny in writing the book, I wrote about it a little bit and I kind of felt selfish writing about, oh, I lost my dog um, because COVID was raging on at that time. A lot of people were having a lot of problems at that time. But yeah, that that was a that was a really low time because, um, you know, dogs are dogs are innocent in every way and they're 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 sincere. And I, he was just gone one day. What became of Gus? Uh, he is still with my ex and his oh uh, his now fiance. Okay, well, that's got to suck. So here is how I totally misjudged you. I always I always believed that you must have had some level of discomfort in in speaking on a very public stage. And that for that reason, you had said, I don't want to do the press avails. I, I don't want to play the traditional role uh, of a press secretary. And and therefore, in, in conversation with President Trump, it was determined that, you know, he'd speak for himself and you would never go out and face the media. Having watched you in the last 24 hours and having watched you in some uncomfortable, maybe settings, meaning you've availed yourself of questioning by people on the left and the right in the media. Man, that is not the case. You've handled yourself very well. So what is the answer as to why you were not? I mean, the title of the book is I'll take your questions now. Why didn't you take people's questions then? Yes. Uh, so I chose the title of the book and it's obviously self-deprecating awesome title. me. Yeah. Hence, thank you. Not not everybody thinks that, but um, it wasn't meant to troll the press, etc. That's why there's an empty podium. When I took the job, I, there's a few levels to it, but <clears throat> when I took the job, first of all, being press secretary had been my dream forever, forever. So of course I wanted to be able to take the podium and spar with the press. And that was always my dream. But when I took the job, the president said he had already stopped the briefings. Um, so Sarah hadn't done them for six months before she left. And he said, you know, I want you to do TV. I want you to work with, you know, the print media, but I don't want the briefings. I I'll talk to the press. I do it better anyway. Um, no more, you know, we're not going to do briefings. You just need to go on TV. And I said, yes, sir, that's fine. 
Um, <clears throat> I kind of hoped that, you know, as time went by, I could, with the help of Mrs. Trump, because you remember, I still worked for her. I was kind of hoping that, you know, when it came time to take the podium, when it was an you know important time, I would use her if he wanted me to say something kind of nutty or dishonest to, to make it so I wouldn't have to do that. Um, in the meantime, I put people out at the podium, right? I put Secretary Mnuchin out at the podium. I put people out with regard to COVID. I put actual subject matter experts out there because I thought, you know, unlike my predecessors and, and the, the woman who went after me, I was thinking if we could just have substantive people out there who could actually give the reporters answers and not have to get into sparring matches, that would, that would serve the country. So that was my loose plan. Um, and as time went by, I selfishly, and sadly, was um, kind of grateful I didn't have to take the podium because it wasn't going to be the podium experience I had always dreamed of. That well, wasn't you going been, to be. You would have been the one selling us on or attempting to sell us on crowd sizes at the inauguration. You also yeah. explained two news events. I mean, you were Stephanie Grisham was not only the White House press secretary and head of communications. She was also the chief of staff for the first lady. You explained two of the times that the first lady was very much in the news, including one that's the back jacket of the book. And she, the first lady, is wearing I really don't care. Do you the jacket? What's most interesting about this story is that the president is upset. Because it becomes an issue after she wears it and he conceives of what will be the party line. The party line will be she was sending a message to the media. And what I found most significant about that, Stephanie, is that the first lady just totally accepted it and went along with it. I found it significant, too. That was one of the very few cases where I ever saw she didn't like anyone to speak for her. First of all, even me sometimes, even even I think she didn't like that she had a spokesperson in me. She just didn't like it, um, let alone her husband. And that day, I I don't know this. She's never said it, but I have to believe that she know she knew she screwed up. That's the only thing I can think of, because she didn't at one even one point say to him, like, no, Donald, let's say this or no, I don't. She just let him go. He dictated that that tweet to Scavino and it went out and she didn't say a word. And I had never seen her do that before. And I, I can't actually think of a time I ever saw her do it again. It was um, it was wild to watch. And then well, generally, it was also wild generally. Generally speaking, is she as deceitful as people believe him to be? Um, no, generally speaking, no, no. She's first of all, she's too private and doesn't talk to enough people to be deceitful. Right. I mean, she's she really just doesn't talk to many people. Um, I always, for the most part, found her to be a genuine person who cared very much for her son, who valued her privacy who uh, definitely loved her husband, but did not agree with everything he did. I think like any marriage and um, no, I don't think in general, she's, she's a deceitful person. You were as one who's read the book cover to cover, you were, I think not revealing about the inner workings of that marriage, which I have to think you have good knowledge of that, you know, where the bodies are buried and I'm not going to push you in that regard beyond what you wrote in the book, but I am going to ask you this. Did you make a deliberate decision that, that you would stay confined to certain issues and not get into others? Yes. Yes, I did. I did. Okay. So tell me um, now, what didn't, what didn't, didn't you tell us in the book? 
No, I, I mean, I just, well, well one thing I did. Oh, well, wait, oh, no, go ahead, do tell. Say, Give me something. No, I'm not going to tell you. But one thing I will say is, you know, if, if you'll notice, uh, their son's name is not in the book once. I definitely so did, did notice. And I and I respected that I, I because I knew you'd made a, about him. I knew you'd made a conscious decision just not to go there. Correct. And um, some her medical procedure that, you know, there's a lot of things I did not talk about and I made a conscious uh, decision to. By the way, on radio last week, when the New York Times first said that Stephanie Grisham's book would reveal that the procedure at Walter Reed had been a colonoscopy, even though I don't think you said that specifically, and that he didn't want anesthesia because he didn't want Pence being in charge for even a couple of minutes, I took the position that he is not man enough to have a colonoscopy without anesthesia. And I was overwhelmed with callers in my radio audience, you would have loved to have heard this, who said, I had a colonoscopy without anesthesia. So the question is, did he have a colonoscopy without anesthesia, yes or no? Yes, but there was some pain meds involved. How about that? Wow. Okay. TC, that was your answer. That was my producer's answer. She, she, she came up with the theory. Um, a selfish question. I came into the White House to have a meeting with you. I was there to try and land an interview with him. I think you worked earnestly to pull that off. When we finally got into the Oval Office, and I had no appointment that day, you took me in, you said, hey, he knows you're here, and he wants to see you. Why couldn't we close the deal on an interview? What was it about me or this program or maybe one of my affiliations that never allowed it to happen? It, his schedule, um, a lot of times, I don't remember when you were there, who was chief of staff? I don't even remember. I don't even remember. Um, a lot of times the chief of staff uh, would kind of nix a, a few things. But to be very honest with you, I'm sure it was his schedule. That man was notoriously late and we couldn't get many, many, many interviews. No, 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 no. I was there. I was there to sell you on selling him. I'd like yes. to think I'd won. I'd like to think I'd won you over. We now went you into did. the Oval Office and he wouldn't commit oh. to me. We never had a scheduled yeah. interview. I could never get there. And I always wanted to know, like, what the hell happened? Oh, not that's what I guess I just didn't say it in a good way. He didn't commit because he he wouldn't commit to anybody. I mean, he at that point had learned like I'm, I'm he generally wouldn't do any interviews until it was like, OK, now I read something that pissed me off. Get them in here. So maybe right. you should have just made him a little bit more angry. I don't well, know. I always figured I always figured it was a CNN thing. Like I always knew I always knew that was never going to happen that I could get him on CNN, but I always thought I could get him here on my radio program and speak to the POTUS audience, but I couldn't make that happen. No, he um it wasn't that because I remember he and I specifically spoke about the CNN component and I said I felt like, you know, it would it would be a more of a fair shake because it would be on your your program. He didn't do radio a whole lot either. I don't think he liked it. If he, if he wasn't on TV, you know, if he wasn't the star and on TV, he he kind of didn't like that either. Stephanie, the hand slap is another thing that you shed light on. Uh, I think it was in Israel. You lay the whole thing out in the book and people thought it was a sign of marital discord. And instead you say, no, Melania Trump didn't think holding hands was befitting in so formal of a ceremony. Is that all it was? Yes, that's all it was. Now, I will say 
something he used to do, which I found really endearing is he used to do that all the time. Like he did it when the France came for the state dinner. She never wanted to show public displays of affection at big events. And he loved trying to kind of slap her hand or pretend to grab her hand to irritate her. She, he did it to her a lot. Um, and, and they would laugh about it a lot. And she, I mean, she'd pretend to be mad at him, but it was actually a very endearing thing. That's all that was that day. Finally, because I, I don't want to give it all away for free. People should go and get I'll Take Your Questions Now by Stephanie Grisham. But I don't know quite why, but I was sort of transfixed by the depiction at Camp David. If you want to get Donald Trump to just calm the hell down, stay off the phone and pay attention to something, then what you need to do is get him popcorn and maybe a diet soda, put him in front of the TV screen and roll Sunset Boulevard. Like, holy crap. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I love the original, love the original and saw the show on Broadway three different times. But I just never took him for a Sunset Boulevard guy. Well, I, I hadn't seen it. I didn't know what it was. And so the first time I saw it was with him at Camp David. Um, <clears throat> but but you're right. And, you know, I mean, that was one of his favorites. And I've never seen him so excited before, you know, that I hadn't seen it. And he was so excited for me to watch it. But every time we watched a movie, be it at Camp David or at the White House Theater, he was quiet the whole time. I mean, he was not on his phone and he paid. I watched, I think, five ish movies with him and every time just quiet, not antsy, nothing. It was it was really something. I wonder why. Hey, final question. And I mean it. Why? Why the Rolling Stones? You can't always get what you want. Why that on the set list? It seems so counterintuitive to say to a political audience, you can't always get what you want. And I regret not asking Trump that question myself when I had the opportunity. What's the answer? He was he was trolling Democrats. He was like, you can't always get what you want. You're going to get me. He was trolling Democrats. Hmm. Yeah, that's it, huh? Do you think yeah. he'll be tro- you think he'll be trolling Democrats again in 2024? You know, I hope not. I didn't think so uh, at first, but in the last, I don't know, two ish months, I've changed my mind and I think he will. I don't think he can give up the power in the spotlight. Stephanie Grisham, I wish you all good things with the book. Thank you so much for being here. I really thoroughly enjoyed reading it and I wouldn't say it if I if, if it weren't the truth. Thank you very, very much for having me. It was fun. See you, Stephanie. Uh, All right. There it is. That is the hottest book in the country, ladies and gentlemen. It is called I Will Take Your Questions Now, What I Saw in the Trump White House. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Superlight Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Superlight Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. 
Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.